Good morning, Red Hills Church family. It is so good to be with you on this Sunday before we get to celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas together. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Kate Swanson. I have the joy of serving as your executive pastor here at Red Hills. And I have loved this video. Pastor Ashley created this for our church family for our series, The Unexpected King. I heard someone a few weeks ago in, in the back row say, I want to go to that movie. And trust me, I do too. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, I've honestly gotten a little misty-eyed each time I've watched it and watched those statements come across the screen. Hope has a name. Peace has a name. Joy has a name. Love has a name. All of these, the highs and lows of each expression, are found within Jesus, the embodied love of God sent to this earth to save, to redeem, and to ultimately restore. And today, we are going to focus on the Advent theme of love. And how do we unpack God's love? How do we qualify or quantify the, the deep, immersive love that God has for his people? and how Jesus entered the world to become the reality of that love. I don't know how we begin to understand something so huge, something that I don't think we can truly grasp in our human existence. And so when I began to think about God's love, I was transported back to the story of my son Noah. He was about five at the time, and we were getting ready one Sunday morning to come to church here. And as he was kind of brushing his teeth, he's, I asked him, Noah, are there any songs you love to sing on Sunday mornings? And he's like, yeah, the Jesus Rhino song. <laughs> and I wasn't aware of a Jesus Rhino song. So I asked him, what song is that, buddy? And Noah replied, you know, Jesus loves me, this rhino. <laughs> and now... That story is adorable, and I will be probably uh, embarrassing him with it around dinner tables the rest of his life. But this small moment made me dive deeper into this statement. Jesus loves me this I know. How do we understand Jesus' love for me, for each of us, especially in this Advent season? Well, for the Bible tells us so. So before we dive into the scriptures, let's briefly unpack a few words for love in the Bible and the meanings behind them. Uh, in ancient Hebrew, one of the words for love is ahava. It can be described as to give loyalty or allegiance, but it also means to give care or affection. This root word can mean all kinds of love. And so the Bible Project actually gave some really great examples of ahava to put this into context. So it can be parental love. Abraham had ahava for his son Isaac. It can mean brotherly love. Jonathan had ahava for his friend David. It can mean collective love. Israel had ahava for King David. It can mean loyal love. Hiram had ahava for David. Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the, build the temple. And it can also mean physical affection. So the king of Persia had ahava for Esther. Although I, I will note there are other words in the Hebrew that mean physical desire or sexual attraction. 
And then when it comes to the New Testament, two of the words used for love are in the Aramaic, which is a cousin language of Hebrew, rachma. And in the Greek, it is agape. Today, we will start in the Old Testament, knowing that so much of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible are a depiction of God's love and faithfulness to his people, Israel. We are going to look at Exodus 3, if you would like to turn there. And we're going to look at the story of the burning bush. Uh, to give you a little background, God appeared to Moses as he was attending to sheep on Horeb, which is the mountain of God, or called the mountain of God. God appeared in a burning bush that was not consumed by flames. We jump in the story after God calls to Moses twice. Uh, tells, God tells Moses, don't come any closer, and to remove his sandals, for he was on holy ground. So we're going to pick up this story in Exodus 3, 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out into a land that is good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jeb Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I want us to notice a few things in this narrative first. So the God of the universe used a small, very insignificant, non-burning, but still very on fire bush to get to Moses, get Moses' attention in the middle of his everyday mundane watching of sheep. God calls to Moses and commands him to do two things. First, to not come any closer and second, to not to remove his sandals. This is actually the first place in scripture the word holy is used. Moses was standing on holy ground. And through God's appearance, God's own confirmation of who he was, the God of your fathers, and Moses' obedience, God shares his deep compassion and concern for his people in Egypt. And through a few twists and turns in the following narrative, God would ultimately fulfill his promise through Moses in this commission. And while Moses wouldn't see it, the people would enter a good and spacious land. Israel would enter the place where these six nations listed were living, and they would possess it all. This story sets the stage for um, Israel's narrative of deliverance out of slavery, and we see the retelling of this narrative in Deuteronomy expressing God's love for his people. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love, ahava, to a thousand generations of those who love, ahava, 
him and keep his commandments. God shares this deep affection with his people, including us. We're part of the thousand generations that followed this story of faithfulness. And throughout scripture, we see that love originates from God's own character. God loves because he is love. It has no beginning or end. A loving triune God created man, Adam, and then woman, Eve, and gave them all of creation and authority over it. And this affectionate God gave them free will, where we would see sin and their decisions enter the world. The same loving Father God sent his son to be the living sacrifice for all the world's sin. I'm going to take a wild guess and estimate that most people in the room know the scripture John 3:16. One thing that's fascinating about growing up in the church myself is that the scripture gets told over and over. But I'm guessing many don't realize that this verse is actually John's description following Jesus's first true teaching. It's the Christmas season, and I personally love to read through the narrative of Jesus's life. So I'll do my best to give a very brief overview. Chronologically, we have the foretelling and then the birth of Jesus. We have an understanding of how prophecy was fulfilled by the many encounters with God or angels protecting Jesus in his early life. We know that at age 12, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival and was accidentally left there by his parents who traveled a full day away. Don't worry, they found him. <laughs> it was three days later, though. Um, and the scripture skips ahead to Jesus being baptized by John and this beautiful interaction with the Trinity. Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. Then Jesus calls a few disciples to come follow him water into wine, flipping tables in the temple, and then bam, we get to this section where uh, there is a teaching for Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a very devout, knowledgeable member of the Jewish ruling council. He started asking Jesus questions. How can you be born again? And he's like, because uh, he, he asks in the scripture, you can't enter your mom's womb again. And Jesus calls out to him, you know the teachings, Nicodemus. You know what you have seen. I've spoken to you about earthly things, and you don't believe them. So how are you going to believe heavenly things? And then Jesus points back to a narrative in the Old Testament, which Nicodemus would know about, and says in John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And it was the power of God's love that was revealed in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Paul states in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us Jesus is Ahava Jesus is agape the ultimate example of giving serving laying down of rights and privileges this divine act of love is God's unconditional commitment to an imperfect people but like we talked about when we discussed Ahava and the meanings behind it behind it this is not just a feeling 
but a call to action. Because of God's love, we are urged to respond to those around us. Last week, Pastor Lane brought up the Shema, which is this prayer that was recited daily by ancient Israelites and is still recited by Jewish people today. It begins in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and quotes other sections of the Torah. And to not skip too far ahead, I'm basically giving you a spoiler alert at this point, (laughs) but this section of scripture is quoted by Jesus when the Pharisees attempted to test him and ask him which is the most important law. So let's read Deuteronomy together. This is 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So let's break this down a little bit. The Shema is named for the first Hebrew word in this prayer. It's a verb to hear, to listen, to obey. And to hear isn't the passing, hey, listen to this. It's more of the really direct discussion where you're asking someone you love, are you listening to me? (laughs) It goes on to note that there is one true creator God. The Lord is one. The God of Israel is the one true God. It uses the Hebrew ehed, which makes the um, sense of the unity made up of several parts. This we know as Christians is the Trinity. And in Hebrew, there is no is. That sounds really odd to us, right? But there is no present tense. So there is past tense and future tense. So they can say there was and will be, but there is no is. This statement in Hebrew breaks down to Lord our God, Lord one. And because of this saving one true God, understanding who he is and what he has done, we are to respond with complete love. We are instructed to love with all our heart, which translated as not your tangible inner organ, but the inner center of your thoughts, emotions, and desires. One Bible dictionary calls it the home of your personal life. And your soul, not meaning the immaterial part of you that we kind of feel is is outside of our body, but it's your whole person, your body, your life force and your strength, which is an adverb meaning much or very. This is kind of seems a little odd to us, but it's actually talking about all of your capacity, all of your influence. It has been said to be your muchness. These three descriptions are giving you a baseline of loving God with all that you are, not to compartmentalize your love in one area of your life versus another. This kind of obedient love isn't about legalism or earning God's favor. To the Israelites, this obedience meant putting God or Yahweh first, having a faithful covenant towards God with all that you are. And this is not a study in psychology. It's rather a gathering of terms to indicate the totality of a person's commitment of self in the purest and noblest intentions of trust and obedience towards God. The words behind heart, soul, and strength basically relate to what a person is and how a person directs himself towards another person. And Jesus, knowing the fulfillment of God's faithfulness and love towards Israel, quotes this section when the Pharisees tried to test him further in Matthew 22:34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together 
One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the Old Testament hangs on this. The law, the Torah, which includes 613 commandments called the mitzvot and the books of the major and minor prophets. This Pharisee knows how many laws there are and asks the question, which is the most important? Rabbis would argue over these laws, which were heavy, meaning important, and which ones were light, kind of meaning a little further down the list. In the same way, the canon of scripture was decided by the defiling of hands, which meant, and we understand as, does this carry weight? This weight, this importance, it ties the definition of love tightly together. There is a sense of obedience and loyalty. We don't separate love and obedience to God. We're not just following God's rules and getting in line. We love and we trust him. And we extend love even when we don't understand or even when we personally disagree. If we don't obey, we don't trust him. Discipleship is understanding that this is a reordering of our lives. And in the meantime, we wrestle with these two commandments on a daily basis. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest commandment. Okay, great, go. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) But we easily get entangled with our personal need for a plan fitting our ideals and our expectations. What's the point? What's my mission? First century Israel's culture understood that the good life came from God and from his scriptures. Our modern day culture, not so much. Our culture believes the good life is found within ourselves. Our thorough understanding, whether it's politics, technology, science, whatever your prerogative, we get this backwards. So much of our culture revolves around the idea that love is what I can get out of it. What is the most pleasure I can receive? Who is going to make me the happiest? What is the best meal I can possibly eat? If you meticulously or obsessively search reviews before you buy, eat, or stay anywhere, I've got to be honest, you might have fallen in lust with this world. We put career or money or pleasure at the top when this life is about loving God in obedience and caring for other people. So how do we care for other people? New Testament authors didn't look in dictionaries They looked at Jesus' teachings and the story of his life to be the definition of the concept of love as followers of Jesus, simply meaning we are learning from him. How do we do things that he said to do? How do we live the way he lived? How do we experience, experience life and the love of God through daily communion in his kingdom? How do we take this teaching of Jesus, and work it into the fabric of our beings and our existence. I've shared a lot of scripture with you today, but I do, I have one main point slide, and that is love is your standard. Love is your mode of operation. If you are a car, love is your automatic transmission, seamlessly operating with the amount needed at any given moment. 
Spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. The end is to become a person of love, reflecting Jesus to all those around you. Reading scripture, silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, living in community, confession of sin, all of these practices are important, but to what end? To love. But we have to do them for the right reasons, to deepen our surrender to God and to live out calling to love others, not checking spiritual discipline boxes, but saying, does my life look a lot more like God's love? To love your neighbor or to love God? Yes, both. Your love for God is an overflow to seek the well-being of others. Jesus was serving in tangible ways. He moved towards the poor, the hurting, and marginalized. He showed love for the forgotten. He marched into Jerusalem and made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people who were full of hypocrisy and corruption. And then he allowed his enemies to kill him. He died because he loved them too. Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. This kind of enemy-embracing love is a reflection of God. It imitates his character. Jesus showed up for people many times in the middle of the worst moment of their lives. I think of the death of his friend Lazarus. He was in the tomb for four days, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, grieving, come to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They both said this to him. And Jesus grieves with them. Jesus wept. This might be one of my favorite scriptures, not just because it was the easiest to memorize as a kid, but because Jesus, in his omnipotence and his humanity, knew the grief that you and I would carry on this earth. Jesus knew he could and he would resurrect Lazarus, and he still deeply wept for his friends and his family that were grieved at what they knew. Not a single tear, not a little misting. Jesus wept. So as we talk about loving our neighbor, even our enemy, what about loving the people that are walking through the heaviness of life? What about caring for them even though it is painful to lift burdens with them? Presence with them is an incredible gift of love. I don't know if you've ever sat with someone in their grief where you just show up for maybe a week in a row and you fold laundry and you bring a meal and you don't really say many words until your grieving friend is ready. You just show up. This is the kind of love that Jesus expressed. And what about justice? How we treat others who maybe you think are lower status or below or maybe lower on the social ladder? with love, with respect, with dignity, how we treat our enemies, maybe fellow Americans on the other side of the aisle or the people who wound or hurt us or gossip about us or defraud us or steal from us or abandon us or reject us or mock us. Are we willing to love them and treat them as we would treat ourselves? Love is sacrifice. Pastor Lane talked last week about self-giving love. Love is giving up your seat on the bus. It's getting up in the middle of the night to comfort a crying child. 
It's giving away your hard-earned money to those who need it more than you. It's taking a project for a colleague who's overwhelmed and stressed at work. It's inviting someone into your home at Christmas time when it would be a lot easier just to host your immediate family. Love isn't the learning, sermons, books, podcasts, whatever your medium. It is sacrifice for those around you to enact the love of God here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We have to understand that our love for God and our love for our neighbor cannot be separated. Our culture has a unique way of self-selecting who our neighbors are. We very tediously look at what neighborhoods before we move in them. We spend hours looking at college websites, making sure they have the right people and the right programs and the right events to fit who I am and who I want to be around. We shop at certain grocery stores on certain sides of town, or maybe we go to the park in the best neighborhood so our kids only interact with a certain demographic. We don't see these small decisions as barriers, but we have put up new walls that the first century people, even in the scriptural context of our neighbors, did not understand. They grew up in the same place, the same small villages. They didn't travel or commute or disconnect or seclude. They needed each other. Their neighbors were their lifelines. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, but... Um, to be really transparent, I've been undone by this message. I think it's extremely sobering to come to the scriptures and pull back the curtain of our culture and our functions and our beings, our choices, and say, what does love look like through an ultimate loving God and the self-sacrifice of Jesus? I ended every day this week in prep asking God, what now? As we peel back these layers and we get to the center and the gravity of God's love, how do I, how do we move forward with that kind of understanding? And God pointed me to the scriptures, which Lane actually um, set up for our scripture reading today. It's 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is my prayer, and this goes through every part of my being. I stand before you not a perfect person. I stand before you broken and not a great example of love. I can be obsessive. I can be forgetful. I can be neglectful of the people closest to me, but I look to God, who has done the most loving thing of all time. He has shown up in the mess and in the sin of the entire world, and he sent Jesus to save us. Jesus has come, and he will come again. And my question to you today is this. What in your life needs to be realigned with his love? How do we pour out our affection to Jesus in our everyday lives? How do we show 
in our worship and in our work that our lives point towards him. And with that, we come to communion. This is our reminder that God's ultimate love for us, that Jesus in the garden, he even asked God to take this mantle, this cup away from him. And he knew that this was the only way. This was the sacrifice that was needed to redeem the sins of the world. And so until we can be with Jesus again, we share these elements and we hold them in our hands and we remember the gift of Jesus to this world. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And Jesus took the cup and said, this is my, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink.